Welcome to this Upila audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama by Floyd Akers. Volume 8, Chapter 18 The Princess Disappears. You may be sure we were given a joyful welcome by our comrades aboard the wreck. Ned was there, a smile mantling his rugged face as the auto came alongside and he assisted us to make fast and mount the slanting deck of the ship. Uncle Nabah's eyes were big and staring as our dainty Indian princess came aboard, but I could see he was pleased with her beauty and modest demeanor. No questions were asked until we were all comfortably stowed on deck and the automobile had been hoisted over the side by the willing sailors and set in its old position. They were glad enough to see us safely returned without bothering us with questioning but I knew of their eagerness to hear of our adventures, and so took an early opportunity to remark, Well, Uncle Naboth, Ned, we got the diamonds. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. I brought the basket and allowed them to inspect the treasure, which they did with wonder and a sort of awe, for they had little to say. How much is this bunch worth? asked my uncle, trying to be indifferent. I think we were all pretty ignorant of the value, I replied, but Moyt and I both think we have secured a snug fortune for each one of us who was interested in the division. We couldn't have done anything at all without the automobile, though, so I am going to give Duncan a part of my share. I won't take it. We made a fair and square bargain. To share and shall I like. I mean to live up to it. But you need the money more than we do. You've got to build a factory to manufacture your machines. And you've got to get a home for Alala. She's a prize we don't share in, but we'd like to contribute to her happiness. So, I shall suggest to Ned and Uncle Naboth, Nux and Marionia, you take a half of all the diamonds, and then we divide the rest. Agreed, cried my uncle, Ned, Nux, and Marionia. And although Duncan objected in a rather pig-headed way, I declared that we had fully made up our minds, and he had nothing to say about the matter. Then we told our story, rather briefly at first, for it would take some time to give our friends all the details of our adventures. Uncle was very proud of the way Brionia and Nux had behaved, and told them so in his outspoken fashion. The honest fellows could have desired no higher reward. After this, Ned told me of his trip. On reaching the ocean, he had rigged a mast and sail on the longboat before a brisk breeze and had soon reached Mazanillo Bay and arrived at Cologne Harbor within a half a day. Cologne is a primitive town built upon a low coral island, but being the Atlantic terminal of the Great Canal, it possessed an office of the Central and South American Telegraph Company, so that Ned was able to send a cable message by way of Galveston to Mr. Harlan. He got an answer the very next day, saying that Carmenia, one of the company's ships, was due at Crystal Ball in a few days, and further instructions as to the disposition of the wrecked cargo would be cabled me on her arrival. Crystal Ball was a port adjoining Cologne, and I remember to have heard that the Carmenia was soon to have come home from the Pacific with a light cargo so I judged it would be Mr. Harlan's intention to have her take our structural steel on board and carry it to San Pedro. All we could do now was to wait, and instead of waiting in unhealthy cologne, 
Ned wisely decided to return to the wreck and report to me. They began to worry over us and to fear the Indians had murdered us, so it was a great relief to them when we came back safe and successful from our perilous adventure. Uncle Naboth admired Alala more and more as he came to know her, and he told Duncan with great seriousness that she was worth more than all the diamonds in the world, to which absurd proposition the inventor gravely agreed. But indeed we were all fond of the charming girl, and vied with one another to do her honor. Even stolid Ned Britton rode across the marshes in the afternoon and returned with a gorgeous bouquet of wildflowers to place in the Indian maid's cabin, formerly his own cabin, but gladly resigned for her use. Ilala accepted all the attention showered upon her with simple, unaffected delight, and confided to us that she had altered entirely her old judgment of the whites, and now liked them very much. They must be my people after this, she said with a sad smile, because I have left the Teglas forever. At dinner, Brionia outdid himself as chef, and provided for the menu every delicacy the ship afforded. Ilala ate little, but enjoyed the strange foods and unusual cooking. After dinner, we sat on the deck in the splendid moonlight and recited at length our adventures until the hour grew late. When I went to bed, I carried the diamonds to my locker, putting them carefully away where no one could get at them until we left the wreck and the time came to make the division. The ship was very safe for the present until another severe gale occurred to bring the waves up the river there was no danger of her going to pieces as she was held firmly to her mud bank weighted on her open planks with the great mass of steel in her hold her bottom was like a crate but her upper works seemed as firm and substantial as ever elala's cabin was on the starboard side but in spite of the ship's listing her window was four or five feet above the surface of the river. She bade us a sweet good night in her pretty broken English, and an hour later everyone on board was enjoying peaceful slumbers, and I, for my part, was dreaming of the fortune we had so unexpectedly secured. Suddenly a cry aroused me. I sat up and listened, but could hear no further sound. Absolute silence reigned throughout the ship. Yet the cry still rang in my ears, and the recollection of it unnerved me. While I hesitated, a knock came at my door, and I got up and lit a candle. Moit was standing outside in the saloon. His face was white, but as undecided in an expression as my own. Did you hear anything, Sam? he asked. Yes. Was it a cry for help? That or a woman's scream, Duncan. Come with me he said, and I followed him to the door of Ilala's cabin. Two or three loud knockings failed to arouse any response. I turned the handle, found the door unlocked, and threw it open. The room was empty. I turned my flickering candle in every direction, lighting up the smallest cranny, as if the girl could be hidden in a rat hole. The window stood wide open and the cool night breeze came through. I turned to Duncan, who stood in the middle of the room, staring at the floor. As my gaze followed his, I saw several of the blue beads Alala had worn scattered over the carpet. It was Nalignad, he muttered. 
The sun blaze have stolen my princess. What's up, boys? asked Uncle Naboth. He was standing in the doorway clad in a suit of pajamas that were striped like a convict's, only in much more gorgeous colors. The Indians have stolen Alala and carried her away, I answered. I am afraid that Uncle Naboth swore. He's a mild-mannered old gentleman, but having taken a strong liking for the beautiful girl, he perhaps could find no other way on the impulse of the moment to express his feelings. Well, he remarked after we had looked blankly into one another's faces for a time, we must get her back again, that's all. Of course, sir, agreed Duncan, rousing himself. We will go at once. What time is it? I asked. Three o'clock, answered my uncle promptly. Then we can wait until morning, I advised. The Indians already have a good start of us, and there would be no chance to overtake them before they regain the king's village. We have to be cautious and lay our plans carefully if we hope to succeed. Perhaps you are right, returned Duncan, wearily. But I swear to you, Sam, I will find Ilala and bring her back with me, or perish in the attempt. I smiled at his theatrics, but Uncle Naboth said seriously, I don't blame you a bit, sir. That girl is worth a heap of trouble, and you can count on me to help you to the last gasp. Come on, I said impatiently. Let's get dressed. Go on the deck to talk it over. I well knew there would be no more sleep for us that night. Although I was not in love with the lost princess, I was as eager to effect her rescue as Moit was. But I must warn you, gentlemen, I continued, that you have to deal with the wiliest and fiercest savage in existence. And if we venture into his dominions again, the chances of our ever coming out alive are very slim. All right, Sam, retorted Uncle Naboth cheerfully. We've got to go take those chances, my lad. So what's the use of grumbling? If you're afraid, son, then you can... began Moit stiffly. Get out, was my peevish reply. I may be afraid, and small wonder if I am against ten thousand Indians, but you know very well I'll go with you. So get your togs on, both of you. I'll meet you out on the deck. Chapter 19. We Attempt a Rescue the entire ship's company was aroused by this time, and it amused me to find that every man-jack down to the commonest sailor was tremendously indignant, and most properly incensed, because Nalignad had dared to steal his own daughter, the successor to his throne, from the white men with whom she had fled. Ned Britton's plan was to arm our entire company to the teeth and march in solid ranks through the forest until we came to the king's village which he figured lay about opposite the point where our ship was stranded. Once at the village, we could surprise the place, capture Alala, and bear her in triumph back to the wreck. There were several objections to Ned's optimistic plan. In the first place, we did not know the forest, and the Indians did. They could hide behind trees and pick us off with arrows before we could use our firearms, or they might ambush us and annihilate our band. Moreover, we were not sure Ilala had been taken directly to the king's village. They might have hidden her somewhere else. It's another case for your automobile, Mr. Moit, declared Uncle Naboth. 
If we're gonna get that girl, you'll have to use the convertible, as sure as fate. There is no doubt of that, returned the inventor promptly. I am determined to start as soon as it is daylight. What's your idea, Duncan? I asked. To simply enter the country of the Teclas, show them a bold and fearless front, find out where the princess is, and then rescue her in some way. I'm afraid they will treat her badly, because she has defied them and run away with me. But she's supposed to be their next ruler, after Nalignad is dead, I said. Yes, if she outlives him, but the king has two other children. He may prefer one of them to rule. That's a fact, I answered. I've seen them. And Nalignad must have been furious at Alala for favoring the hated whites. There is no time to lose, continued Duncan nervously. We must start as soon as possible, and make our plans on the way. Who will go with me? Everyone, of course, wanted to go, but we finally settled that Uncle Naboth and I, with Nux and Brionia, should accompany Duncan Moyt in the automobile. If we did not return within twenty-four hours, then Ned Britton was to land his sailors and march quickly through the forest to our rescue. This arrangement was the best we could think of, and when I, frankly, told the men that this hazardous duty would not be forced upon them, since the adventure was wholly outside their province as seamen, they one and all declared that they would see us through or die in the attempt. Only Dick Lombard, whose arm had been broken, and an old sailor with a bruised knee were to be left behind, that they might care for the ship in our absence. No one could steal the cargo anyway. It's too heavy, I remarked. And if the Indians managed to do us up entirely, Mr. Harlan will still be able to get his steel beams. So we need not worry about the ship. It was a desperate enterprise, and we knew it. But so strong was our admiration for the princess of the Teclas that we did not hesitate to attempt on her behalf all that brave men might be capable of. At the first break of day, we got the automobile over the side and safely launched it. There was not a moment's unnecessary delay, and as Duncan was now familiar with the river channel, we were soon paddling at our best speed up the river. By the time the red rays of the rising sun gleamed over the water, we had passed the two hillocks and reached the southern tributary that led into the land of the Teclas. We saw no Indians in the forest this time. Either it was too early for them to be abroad, or they had assembled inland for some purpose. The forest was deserted. Our progress was, of course, much slower than on land. I think the automobile paddled only about eight miles an hour on still water, but as we now had to stem a current, we made less time than that. The distances were not great in Panama, where the Isthmus has a breadth of only some fifty miles, so we were not long in passing the northern forest and coming to the coastal plains. We left the river at the same spot as before, where the bank was low and shelving. For in talking over our plans, we had decided to make directly for Nalignad's own village. It was reasonable to suppose that Ilala had been taken there first, it being the nearest point to the ship from whence they had stolen her. The king would intend to hide her, even if he permitted his rebellious daughter to live, but we judged that he would not expect us to give chase so soon, that we would dare venture into his dominions a second time the astute monarch would hesitate to believe. We relied much upon the promptness with which we had acted, 
and although we were forced to travel by a roundabout route, with good luck we would reach the king's village by the middle of the next afternoon. Once on the broad and level plains, Moyt allowed his machine to do its best. We knew there were no obstructions in the way, so we made a wonderful dash across the country. No effort was made by the sun blaze to oppose us or interfere our progress. We observed no warriors at all, and the few farmers we passed scarcely paused in their labors long enough to stare at us. When we came to Ogo's village, however, we saw by means of the glass that the place was swarming with Indians, who were as busy and excited as bees in a hive. This puzzled us and made us fear the princess might be in this place instead of the village farther on. But we decided to stick to our first program, so we circled around the town to the north and continued on our way. Much faster than we had covered the distance before, we now fled over the plain, and soon the enclosure became visible and our journey was almost over. A great jagged section of the wall had been blown up by the explosion, wrecking some of the huts at the same time. But as we drew nearer, we discovered that the Lignad had caused a big ditch to be dug in the form of a half-moon, reaching from one end of the broken wall to the other. This ditch was evidently made on our account, and as we circled outward into the plain, it prevented most effectually our entering the enclosure with the automobile. We smiled at so childish an attempt to borrow us from the village, but it informed us plainly that the king had anticipated our return, and that he feared us, and that knowledge served to encourage us very much. We halted the machine outside the ditch, a hundred yards or so from the wall, and then proceeded to take careful observation of the condition of affairs at the village. Our arrival had created no apparent excitement. There were no crowds to be seen, and the few natives, men or women, who stalked across the space that was visible within the wall, merely turned their faces toward us for a moment and then continued on their way. A woman sat at one side of the gap, milking a goat. Another near her was hanging some newly washed tunics on the edge of the broken wall to dry them in the sun. But neither of these gave us more than a glance or allow us to interrupt their occupation. This apathy was mystifying. Surely we had created enough excitement at the time we left the king's village to ensure a degree of interest in our return. If the savages imagined their puny ditch any protection, they were likely to find themselves much mistaken. Presently we saw something that aroused us to action. The Lala appeared, crossing the enclosure from one of the side huts to the king's palace. Her hands were bound firmly behind her back, and her eyes covered with a thick scarf, which effectually blindfolded her. She was led and pushed along by two sour-visaged old women who showed their princess scant courtesy. Moit swore roundly under his breath, and I myself was filled with indignation at the poor girl's condition. At the same time, we were gratified to know we had found her by coming promptly to the right place. Now, said Duncan grimly, we know what to do. What's that? I inquired. They will bring her out again, sooner or later, and then we must make a dash, seize her, regain the automobile, and fly back to the ship. Well, that sounds pretty easy, ejaculated Lugger Naboth admiringly. The women had finished milking and hanging out their clothes, 
Just now the courtyard seemed deserted. This is our chance, cried Boyd. Follow me, all of you, except Mr. Perkins. He must stay to guard the machine and to wave us a signal when a lala appears. We will creep up to the broken wall, hide behind it, until the princess comes back. Then we will make a rush all together, capture her before the Indians know what we are about. Are you all armed? We were, and ready. Duncan leapt from the car and we followed him. Then, bounding across the narrow ditch, we ran silently but quickly to a position behind the wall where those inside could not see us. We crouched panting to await Uncle Naboth's signal. Chapter 20 Outwitted The silence of death seemed to reign in the little village. All life had for the moment ceased, and gradually this extraordinary fact impressed me ominously. Where are all the people? I whispered to Moyt. I cannot imagine, he answered. Guess die in the courtyard of the palace, said Bry, who with Nux stood just beside us. Princess being judged, everybody looking on. That seemed plausible, and it was a condition especially favorable to our plans. So we waited in suppressed excitement, our eager eyes upon the automobile, until suddenly we saw Uncle Naboth spring to his feet, and wave his red handkerchief. At the signal, we four rose as one man and dashed through the gap into the enclosure, each with a revolver held fast in either hand. As I bounded over the loose rubbish, something suddenly caught me and threw me violently to the ground, where I rolled over once or twice, and then found myself flat upon my back, with a gigantic Indian pressing his knee against my chest. I heard a roar from Moit and answering shouts from the two Maoris, and turning my head saw them struggling with a band of natives who surrounded them on every side. Indeed, our conquest was effected much sooner than I could describe the event on paper, and within a few moments all four of us stood before our captors disarmed and secretly bound. I own I was greatly humiliated by the clever deception practice upon us by Nalignad. The wily king had foreseen our arrival, and using Alala as bait, had ambushed us so neatly we had no chance to fight or resist our capture. The victory was his, and it was complete. Of course, they still had to reckon with Uncle Naboth. I could see him standing in the car, glaring with amazement at the scene enacted within the enclosure. The Indians saw him, too and with wild and triumphant yells a score of them rushed out and made for the car. But my uncle was warned and had calmly laid a number of revolvers upon the seat beside him. With a weapon in either hand, the old gentleman blazed away at the Teclas as soon as they approached, doing such deadly execution that the natives were thrown into confusion and held back, uncertain what to do. Having emptied one brace of revolvers, Mr. Perkins hurled them at the heads of his assailants and picked up another pair. I wondered that the sand blaze did not shoot him down with arrows or impale him on a spear, for the top was down and he was unprotected from such missiles. But doubtless they had been instructed to capture him alive and had not been prepared for such a vigorous resistance. 
Presently, an Indian who had made his way around to the opposite side put his hand on the rail and leapt lightly into the car. But my uncle turned in a flash and seized the fellow at the waist in his powerful arms. Lifting the astonished Tekla high into the air, Uncle Naboth flung him bodily into the furious crowd before him, tumbling a number of his foes to the ground with his living catapult. But such magnificent strength and courage was without avail. Four uncle could seize his revolvers again. A dozen warriors had leapt into the car beside him and grasped him so firmly that further struggle was useless. The little man collapsed immediately and was dragged out and brought to where we had been watching him in wonder and admiration. Good for you, uncle, I cried. If we could have managed to put up such a fight, it might have been a different story. He smiled at us cheerily. Ain't had so much fun, my lads since Polly had the measles. But it couldn't last, of course, because I am all out a training. And now that all our party had been captured, transforming powerful enemies into helpless victims, King Nalignad appeared before us with a calm countenance and ordered us taken to one of the huts, there to remain in confinement to await his pleasure concerning our disposal. So who's this feller? asked Uncle Naboth, looking hard at the king. That's Nalignad, I replied, rather depressed by our hard luck. Why, hello, Natty, old boy. Glad to meet ya, said Mr. Perkins, advancing as far as his captors would let him, and holding out one of his broad, fat hands. The king regarded him silently. It was the first time he'd had an opportunity to inspect this addition to our former party but he paid no attention to the outstretched hands. I know your daughter well, continued Uncle Naboth, unabashed at the marked coolness with which his friendly advances were met. She's a fine gal, the leg. Ought to be proud of her, old chap. With this, he began to chuckle and poke the king jovially in his royal ribs, causing the stern-visaged monarch to jump backward with a cry of mingled indignation and rage. This so pleased my uncle that his chuckle increased to a cough which sent him choking until he was purple in the face. The king watched this exhibition with amazement. But when his prisoner recovered with startling abruptness and wiped the tears of merriment from his eyes, the barbarian gave a disdainful grunt and walked away to his palace. He was followed by his band of attendant chiefs whom I recognized as his former counselors. I looked around for Alala, but she had disappeared the moment we rushed into the enclosure, having doubtless been dragged away by her attendants as soon as she had served the purpose of luring us into the trap. We were now taken to one of the huts built against the wall and thrust through a doorway with scant ceremony. It was merely a one-roomed affair with thick walls and no furniture, but a clay bench at the back. The only aperture was the doorway. Several stout warriors, well-armed and alert, raised themselves before this opening as a guard. We were not bound for having lost all our weapons, including even our pocket knives. We were considered very helpless. I don't like the looks of this thing, I remarked, when we had seated ourselves quite soberly in a row on the mud bench. Bad enough, sure enough, Master Sam, said Bryony with a sigh. I hope they don't touch my machine. 
observed Moit nervously. I don't mind what they do to me if they let the automobile alone. That's rubbish, I said. They couldn't run it to save their necks. Don't worry about it. I suppose we won't have much use for an automobile in the course of a jiffy or two, added my uncle cheerfully. Oh, I depend a good deal upon Ned and his men, I replied. He will be sure to come to our rescue early tomorrow morning. Too light then, Master Sam, muttered Knox. Dat wicked key ain't gonna let us just live long, I suspect. Why'd he put us in here? I demanded. If he intended to kill us quickly, he'd have murdered us on the spot. There was nothing to prevent his doing that, most certainly, said Moyt, eagerly adopting the suggestion. This aspect of the affair was really encouraging. So elastic is hope in the breast of doomed men that we poor creatures sat there for an hour or more and tried to comfort ourselves with the thought that a chance for escape might yet arise. It was pitiful, now that I look back upon it, but at the moment that outlook did not appear to us especially gloomy. I do not believe we had any regrets for following the Indian girl and trying to rescue her. Ilala had stood by us, and it was our duty to stand by her, even had not Moit been so infatuated by her beauty that he could not be contented without her. Being a boy and less stolid than my elders, I caught myself wondering if I should ever behold the handsome ship my father was building, and sighed at the thought that I might never stand upon its deck after all the ambitious plans that we had laid for the future. There was little comfort in the thought that all the diamonds were safe in the locker of the wreck, and that Ned would look after them and carry my share as well as Uncle Naboth's to my father. But we were likely to pay a good price for the treasure we had wrested from the San Blaise. Midday arrived and passed. Food was brought to our guard, but none was given to us. We were not especially hungry, but this neglect was ominous. It meant that we either had not long to live or our foes intended to starve us. We tried to believe that the latter was the correct solution to the problem. Soon afternoon, however, all uncertainties vanished. Our guards entered, commanded by one of the chiefs, and said we were to be taken to judgment. They prepared us for the ordeal by tying our hands behind our backs with thongs, so securely that there was no way to slip the bonds. Then they fastened us together in a string by an original method. A coil of dressed skin was brought, and an Indian held one end while another made a slip noose and threw it over Duncan's head. A second slip noose was placed around Bryonia's neck, a third around that of Uncle Naboth, a fourth around Nux, and the fifth around my neck. There was still enough of the coil remaining for a second guard to hold, and there we were. If any one of us attempted to run or even struggle, they would tighten his noose, and perhaps one of those of the others, and risk choking. It wasn't a bad method of keeping us orderly and meek, and we were not at all pleased with the arrangement, I assure you. When we had thus been secured, the chief, who, by the way, was a green chief, ordered us sturdily to march, and so, like a gang of chained convicts, we tramped from the gloomy hut and passed out into the courtyard. Chapter 21 The Sacrifice 
The elaborate preparations made for our judgment were certainly flattering, but we were in no mood to appreciate the mocking attentions of the San Blaise. The open space of the enclosure in front of the palace was filled with a crowd of silent Indians, so many being present that we knew that they must have gathered from all parts of the territory. Our guards led us through the close ranks of these spectators to a clear place near the center, where King Nalignad sat upon a bench with a score of his favorite green chiefs ranged about him. At the sides of this interesting group several women, all of whom had green in their tunics, squatted upon the ground. At the king's feet were the same pretty boy and girl I had seen on my first presentation to the potentate. But this was not all. In the open space at the right of the king stood Alala between two stout guards. The girl's hands were bound behind her back as ours were, but she was no longer blindfolded. Her proud and beautiful face wore a smile as we were ranged opposite her, and she called aloud in English in a clear voice. Have fortitude, my white chief. In death as in life, Ilala is your own. A murmur of reproach came from those of the San Blaise who understood her speech. The king looked at his daughter with a dark frown mantling his expressive features. "'And I belong to Ilala,' replied Duncan Moyt composedly, as he smiled back at his sweetheart. "'Indeed, I was proud of the courage of all my comrades on this trying occasion. Brionia and Nux were dignified and seemingly indifferent. Uncle Naboth, smiling and interested in each phase of the dramatic scene, and the inventor, as cool in appearance as if this gathering of the nation was intended to do him honor. I do not know how I myself bore the ordeal, but I remember that my heart beat so fast and loud that I was greatly annoyed for fear someone would discover its rebellious action and think me afraid. Perhaps I really was afraid, but I was greatly excited too, for it occurred to me that I was facing the sunshine and breathing the soft southern air for almost the last time in my life. I was sorry for myself because I was so young and had so much to live for. Ilala, it seemed, was to be judged first because her rank was higher than that of the strangers. The king himself accused her, and when he began to speak, his voice was composed and his tones low and argumentative. But as he proceeded, his speech grew more passionate and fierce, though he tried to impress upon his people the idea that it was his duty that obliged him to condemn Lala to punishment. However that plea might impress the Teclas, it did not deceive us in the least. It was father against daughter, but perhaps the king's hatred of the whites had turned him against his firstborn, or else he preferred that the pretty girl nestling at his feet should succeed him. Lords and chiefs of the Teclas, he said, speaking in his native language, the Princess Ilala has broken our laws and outraged the traditions that have been respected in our nation for centuries. We have always hated the white race, and with justice. We have forbidden them to enter our dominions and refused to show them mercy if they fell into our hands. But this girl, whose birth and station are so high that she is entitled to succeed me as ruler of the Teclas, has violated our most sacred sentiments. 
She has favored and protected a band of white invaders. She has dared to love their chief, who has lied to us and tricked us. She has even forgotten her maidenly dignity and run away with him, preferring him to her own people. It is the law that I, her father, cannot judge or condemn her, although it is my privilege to condemn all others. Therefore, I place her fate in the hands of my noble lords. Tell me, what shall be the fate of the false Tekla? What shall be Elala's punishment? The chiefs seemed undecided and half frightened at the responsibility thus thrust upon them. They turned and consulted one another in whispers, casting uncertain looks at the princess, who smiled back at them without a trace of fear upon her sweet face. Standing beside Alala, I now discovered our old friend Tcharn, the goldsmith and arrow-maker, whose eager face showed his emotion at the peril of his friend. His dark eyes roamed anxiously from the girl to her judges, and it was plain to see that he was fearful of her condemnation. I myself tried to read the decision of the chiefs from their faces, and decided that while Alala was doubtless a great favorite with them all, they could find no excuse for her conduct. Their conference lasted so long that the king grew impatient, and his animosity became more and more apparent as he glowered menacingly upon the girl and then glanced appealingly at her judges. Finally, the conference came to an end. A tall, lean chief whose gray hair and the prominence of the green stripes in his tunic evidently entitled him to be the spokesman stepped forward and bowed low before the king. Mighty ruler of the Teclas, he said, we have weighed well the strange conduct of the princess Elala and desire to ask her a question. The speech of the accused may not be considered, said the king gruffly. It affects not her condemnation, but rather her punishment, returned the other. Then proceed. Princess continued the old man, speaking in a kindly tone, as he addressed the young girl. If in our mercy we spare your life, will you promise to forsake your white chief and yield him and his followers to our vengeance? No, she answered proudly. Her questioner sighed and turned to his fellows, who nodded at him gravely. Then, he said, again turning to the king, we find that the conduct of the Princess Elala merits punishment, and the punishment must be death. The king smiled triumphantly and cast a look around the assemblage. Not a man or woman returned his smile. They stood steadfast as rocks, and only the little arrow-maker gave way to his grief by bowing his head in his hands and sobbing most pitifully. We also find continued the grave chieftain, breaking the painful pause, that the law forbids any Tekla to lift a hand against one of royal blood, and especially is that person immune who is next in succession to the throne. This statement caused a thrill that could not be repressed to pass through the crowd. The natives looked at one another curiously, but satisfaction lurked in their dark eyes. They began to like these people. In themselves, they were not especially disposed to evil. 
but their fiendish king had dictated their thoughts and actions for so long that they were virtually the slaves of his whims. Therefore, said the chief, speaking in a firm voice, who will execute our decrees of death upon the royal princess? I will, cried the Lignat, springing to his feet. The king is bound by no law save his own will. The girl is condemned to death, and she will die. With a lightning gesture, he caught up his bow and notched an arrow. I looked toward Alala. Her face was pallid and set, but she did not flinch for an instant. One fleeting glance she gave into Duncan's face, and then turned her eyes steadily upon her fierce and enraged sire. The king did not hesitate. He drew the bowstring to his chin, took rapid aim, and loosed a deadly shaft. A cry burst from the assemblage, and even while it rang in my ears, I saw Chacharn leap into the air before the princess, receive the arrow in his own breast, and then fall writhing in agony upon the ground.